Good morning. I guess you can hear me now. That's wonderful. I'd like to commence this morning by just thanking uh, the session and members of the church for this kind invitation to be here with you this morning. It's always uh, an incredible thing to be invited to such a vibrant, lively church. And I hope what I'm offering this morning will be a vibrant, lively reflection on the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Um, If you wouldn't mind, just put up the first slide for me, Clement, and then I should be okay. That's not the first slide, though. (laughs) That's the first slide. There we go. Let's pause and pray. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, open our hearts and minds that we may be focused and directed towards your goodness, towards the salvation message that is clearly offered here in your gospel. May we rise from this place and say, Amen, it has been good to be in the house of the Lord. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I'd like to start with a bit of a confession. I was preparing for this week's sermon, and I had practically finished my outline, and I was really pleased with it and ready to go when I read uh, the work of this scholar named uh, Chad Bird. Chad Bird gave a brilliant overview of our text, and it kind of shattered what I had done. (laughs) So I decided I'd share what he had to say with you, and the problem became that he didn't include what I considered uh, the most overlooked symbol in the text, which is key to considering a deeper understanding of what Matthew is revealing. The symbol that I think he overlooked somewhat in our reading is the wind. Wind. So listen for that as we read the word, and remember that wind is a key, in my opinion, to understanding what the passage reveals. So as most of you know, uh, the wind is used as a symbol often in Scripture for the presence of God. In the Hebrew Testament, the word is most frequently used is ruach. Ruach. It's a good way to clear your throat. Its, um, it's meaning it is wind, but wind that encompasses the presence of God. In the New Testament, the word most often used this way is pneuma. And that word is translated most often in English as spirit. So you have ruach, and you have spirit pneuma, okay? So the presence of, the, of this symbolic word in our text helps us to understand that Jesus is God being experienced by Peter firsthand in the water. This is something the Jewish readers of the text would have recognized immediately. And it would also have been something that they thought was impossible for anyone to have actually experienced because it was their belief that anyone who laid eyes on God would immediately die. You could not see the face of God. If you did, you were toast. It was as simple as that. So in my interpretation of the text, I do believe that Peter sees the wind, and in seeing the wind, he sees God. And it is this 
that he is afraid of, not the storm as it is often interpreted. In my opinion, if he was scared of the storm, he would have stayed in the boat. And I don't mean to make you folks at home feel bad, but uh, yeah, you stay home when, when there's a storm and you're afraid of it. <laughs> Now, to get ourselves in the mood, before I, uh, before I give you the whole uh, text, last week, in a beautiful sermon that was offered by our pastor Alex, he said on the Sabbath, there should also be an element of joy. And one of the things that I've experienced through my whole uh, vocational career and my whole worship career in the Presbyterian Church is it's seldom something that we um, intentionally inject into worship, joy. I think we need to have some of it. So I am going to center out Angeline this morning. Angeline, I had promised to bring a hat for your Uh, father. Unfortunately, when I finally found it, it's a children's hat. Um, it won't do for your dad, because it'll never go over his head. But it reminded me of something that's very important for this text this morning. Back in the heyday, when the Jays were winning frequently, they did something in the, what used to be called the Sky Dome. It was called the Wave. Do you remember it? Now, if you really want to get into this text, I suggest <laughs> that we do the wave. Because wave is the other element, the wind and the wave, that gets this whole thing flowing. And, and if you're like I remember I was, sitting in the pews in the Presbyterian Church, about now is when I started to have brain fade. So... The wave. Let's start over here and go this way. Ready? Whoa, we got some standing wavers. All right. Okay. Now, now you're in the mood for a storm. And this storm is like unbelievably powerful. But first, let me share with you Chad Bird's analysis of the text. Sitting in the pews here at Courtright, one of the great strengths of this church is the biblical analysis that takes place. It's a wonderful thing. Alex does it, Justin does it, Allison does it, and they all do it extremely well. And it's an important thing for us to get into that text, to wrestle with it and understand what it's all about. So what Chad Bird offered was very, very interesting. Um, oh, I'm supposed to advance it. Does it work? Oh, it quit on me. Clement, could you advance to the next slide? Here we go. Um, and what uh, Chad offers is that this text is a multi layered text. And so what he has uh, compared it to is this beautiful piece of work by uh, a French um, impressionist, Francis Picabia, from early in the last century. And what he has done is a very layered presentation. In this particular um, piece of art, we're going to see several things that are about the beheading of John the Baptizer. Now, many of you um, are used to doing um, visual puzzles and such. I'll try and 
point them out on both screens a little bit at a time. First of all, can you see the face of Jesus? Here it is here. Okay? So, so we have the face of Jesus setting the tone as over the rest of the things that are going on, observing the rest of the things that are gone, going on, and very pained. Can you see the dancer? The dancer is a little more obvious. Here she is, and she's still extending her leg into... So that looks like Salome continuing to perform her dance. Can you see Herod and his servant? Back here, behind by the pillar. Can everybody see John the Baptist's head on the platter? Okay, so, so something that's crucial to the story is evident and presented clearly. Can you see the crown of thorns on Jesus' head? You have to look very, very closely, but here it is. See the thorn, there's the crown, and it goes across on Jesus' head. And then behind dust, uh, Jesus' head is the glory, the Shekinah glory. You see these wonderful illustrations right around our Savior's head showing the hope of the future. So this multi-layered approach to showing many themes in one picture is an example of what the gospel story is like. The gospel story has many layers, and it refers to other parts of Scripture within itself. And so we, as we understand it and look at it, we mine the story in Matthew 14 for those places that refer to other parts of Scripture. And it helps us to go down deep. Okay? The other thing that's fascinating to me, I think this is a, a seraphim here by John the Baptist protecting uh, the remains of him. And down here are some anointing materials. Are they there for his death? Are they, are they there for anointing Jesus as king? What are they there for? Uh, unfortunately, our artist isn't here to explain to us exactly what all the symbols are. But it's, it's incredible, isn't it? When you take the time to stop, look, and mine the details. Okay, so... This story is only a few verses ahead of the story that we're going to read this morning, is the other thing that's essential to us. So the beheading of John the Baptist sets the tone and situation for them going out after the feeding of the 5,000. So let's carry on to the next slide. Clement? Try it. All right, I'm in control. So we're going to read Matthew 14, 22 to 33 in the New International Version. And I've entitled my reflections on this, Jesus Walks on Water, uh, Peter Not So Much. So. Oh, okay. I'm pointing my thing at the wrong place. Immediately, Jesus 
made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went on up a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Do we need to do the wave again? No? You're okay? All right. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Now just pause here for a moment. This little piece here, it is I, it is I, this is essential for us. If we look at the Greek original, it says, ego, eimi, me. This means I am the same way as in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses saying, I am. I am he. I am who I am. And so what we have here is this in, intuition that Jesus is beginning to reveal himself fully to Peter and the disciples. Take courage, it is I. It is I, the Lord, I, God, here on the water. That's a very crucial element for us to understand. Okay. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Again, think about it. Can you see the wind? No. You can see evidence of the wind. You can see the wind move things, but the wind itself, you cannot see. Except if you're Peter. It says very clearly, again, if you go back to the autograph, the original in the Greek, he saw the wind. So he saw something impossible to see. He saw something supernatural. Something beyond our capacity. And that, again, is important for our interpretation. And beginning to sink, he, Peter, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And then, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Here ends the reading of the word. May God add his blessing to our understanding. Amen. So in Chad Bird's way of looking at this text, he sees four essential connections to other, uh, we call them pericopes, other stories in Scripture that are essential for us to connect to. The first one is creation, the creation narrative. So we go right back to Genesis 1, 2, 
And there we read, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So Genesis 1-2 provides the first layer of our discovery about the text. Jesus sends the 12 disciples on ahead immediately after feeding the 5,000. In the meantime, Jesus goes up the hillside to be alone in prayer, in solitude, in comfort. There's all kinds of things that go on there for us to imagine. Is he recuperating? Is he communing with God? Is he planning and deciding ahead? The one thing that we are certain of is that he is considering what are his ministry possibilities looking forward. But meanwhile, the text tells us that out on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are making no headway. No headway. Why? Because the wind is against them. They are traveling at night, they're being buffeted by waves, and they are experiencing the power of chaos, which is the same chaos that existed prior to creation. Now, there have always been sailors who have nightmares, sailors who have no time, sailors who believe that the worst possible thing is that the, that the powers of nature will be against them and that they have nothing in their power able to combat that. Nothing powered by oars, nothing powered by sails can prevail against these powers of chaos. And so there are the disciples in this dilemma. The wind is against them, and no seasoned sailors have any possibility. There are no tactical techniques to deal with this situation. So just as in creation, there can be no survival without the Spirit of God hovering over that void, that blackness, that terrifying deep. So that's the first connection. The second connection, I couldn't help but put Charlton Heston up there for you from the Ten Commandments. The second connection is Moses and that amazing situation where the, the uh, Hebrew people are hard-pressed against the Red Sea and there is no way out. There is no possible escape for them as the Egyptians with their superior army and mobility with the chariots have them confined. The only way is through the sea. And to every possible imagination, that is not possible. But somehow the God of Israel provides a way through the sea. The, the waters are calmed, the waters are separated, and there is a dry path through the sea. This is astonishing. And this relates so powerfully to what Jesus is doing in Matthew 14. The, the Hebrew people remember it in their Psalms. Beautifully here they say in Psalm 77, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. 
Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now that is beginning to give us the right uh, orientation towards, well, what is our relationship with God like? It's like being delivered from the worst peril we could possibly find ourselves in. The greatest difficulty, the darkest of darkness, the greatest chaos. But then there's one more. There's actually four altogether. Here's the third one. The third one is this incredible understanding that in ancient times there was a monster in the sea. The monster is called Rahab or Leviathan, and it is the destroyer of everything that comes out on the sea. It's interesting, because even in uh, early exploration times, we see representations of this kind of animal on maps. If you've ever looked at really old maps, you'll see, you know, you sail out so far and then you get eaten. That's it, end of story. So that's why they never sailed very far from shore. They, they stayed close to shore, and they explored down the coast of Africa, and they went around the Horn, but they never went out directly west for the longest time. Because they believed when the ship didn't come back that something like this got them. And so the, the, the terror and the fear of this kind of a beast lay in the heart of every ancient mariner. So when Jonah's getting thrown overboard in that story, the fear isn't that he's going to get swallowed up by a friendly fish. The fear is he's going to encounter one of these. Again, Scripture itself reveals the background of this in the prophets. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples from Isaiah. In Isaiah 51, Awake, awake, arm of God, clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Now the essential piece here again is that it is the redeemed who might cross over. He has done all this. The Lord God has done all this. He has done it for his people. So again, we're getting this sense that it's building, it's building, it's building. And what is Jesus going to put on top of all of this? Again, Isaiah in, uh, I believe it's Isaiah 30, 31. Oh, push the right button. I'm going to blind the guys in the booth back there. Uh, in 30, verse 7. To Egypt, whose help is utterly useless, therefore I call her Rahab the do-nothing. This is a terrible insult to Egypt. Egypt is being compared to a sea monster that's dead, that has no power, that has no ability to affect anything in real time. Egypt is past and no longer influences world affairs. And then the last connection is the most beautiful. And it is this one. 
We are dead in the water, but we're alive in Jesus. And it is focusing on the waters being baptismal waters. But what is the difference in these waters and baptismal waters? Well, even if you weren't dunked, we wouldn't baptize people in the midst of a storm and, and put their life at jeopardy, would we? At least I wouldn't. I think there's something in my ordination vows that says, do not put the baby at risk and baptize them. You know. uh, have any of you read Barbara Kingsolver's book where, where they used to go in the river and baptize them and the crocodiles were there? The Poisonwood Bible? No? I'm getting off track. Um, what, what we're focused on here is the symbolism of going into the waters of chaos and dying to the life we have to rise to a new life. And if you were sprinkled, that doesn't matter. I was sprinkled too as an adult. But I understand the symbolism. I understand the meaning of what my baptism was. That's the part that's crucial. Okay, so now how are we going to take all of this into the text? And then we're going to scoot for home. Well, what was the word for wind if it wasn't ruach or pneuma? The word was animos, which you can tell in English we would take our word animate. So if you understand animate, it is like giving life to something that's formless. It's like bringing it to life. And so what is happening in this wind is something that only God can do. So in the autograph of our text this morning, we don't have the Greek word pneuma, which would have been a lock for the interpretation that I'm offering to you. But Spirit is mentioned three times, or excuse me, wind is mentioned three times. We have the word animos for wind, which requires a little more interpretive work. The reason I believe this word for wind is utilized instead of pneuma is that in this instance, uh, Matthew has used it especially to, to separate that it's not the spirit that that they see. It's not a dove. It's not bodily coming down. It's not a, a, a disembodied voice saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. It is an actual encounter. And so uh, Matthew chooses, or, or the Spirit uh, inspires Matthew to use the word animos, and that puts the wind in a position of being able to influence physically and materially what's going on in the story. Does that make sense to you folks? So as that occurs, the wind becomes the adversary initially. The wind is preventing them from getting to their destination. The wind is opposing them. And it's blowing in a way that stops the disciples from getting anywhere. Then when Peter sink, seeks to join Jesus on the water... Everything is all right, right? He, I mean, he climbs out of the boat in the midst of a storm. Good too, I say. And he starts to walk. Everything's good. And then the scripture says he sees the wind. 
And that's when he starts to sink. He starts to sink exactly when he sees the wind. So for me, as I understand this text, it is the fear of God and the knowledge that he ought not see the wind that sets him down. Okay. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. I think that is the shortest prayer in the New Testament. It's also the shortest prayer in the Old Testament. Who said that prayer in the Old Testament? Just play a little bit of, was it Jeopardy? Hands on the buzzer? Jonah. Jonah said that exact same prayer, and he's on his way down to Davy Jones' locker. And he says, Lord, save me. It's the first time in that book that he prays to God. All the other times, he's kind of avoiding God. But the first time with direct contact, he says, Lord, save me. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. And it's not just for when you're in a total mess. It's a great prayer anytime, anywhere. Okay. We all know you can't see the wind. You can only see the evidence of the wind. To see the wind, you're in a whole different dimension of things. Scripture says, however, that Peter saw the wind. So at this point, he becomes afraid. He begins to sink. In the Hebrew Scripture, it repeats many, many times, nobody can see the face of God. So that's where I make my connection. Peter has seen Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. Not like he sees him when they're having dinner together or when they're walking on the trail, but he sees him revealed fully in his glory, even beyond what he saw in the transfiguration up the mountain. And when he encounters and sees this, He's, he's in a total state of abject fear, and he begins to sink. Now, I ask you, when, when that occurs, and he cries out that, Lord, save me, that short, beautiful prayer, what happens next? This most incredible representation. I couldn't believe it when I found this. This is Peter looking up through the water. Immediately, that's one of Matthew's favorite words, immediately when Jesus heard, what does he do? He reaches a hand in the water and he pulls him out. And what I love about this is that speaks to my heart and to my life experience. Does Jesus say, What's the answer to question one on the Westminster Confession of Faith? No. Does he say, did I see you in temple last uh, Saturday? No. Does he say, did you graduate from Sunday school? Can I see the bars? No. You ask, he moves. He moves immediately. And he pulls this wayward Peter out of the water. 
Now, once he pulls him out, he has a few words of rebuke for him, but he will not abandon him. That is so beautiful and so reassuring. I have been in so many places where I should have been kicked to the curb, but it's never happened from Jesus. I love this picture. I love Peter's prayer. And I have made it my prayer many, many times throughout the years. This morning, I'm hoping some of you will make it your prayer. Because there's a Savior ready to pull you out of whatever is your chaos. Right now. Immediately, as Matthew loves to say. Lord, save me. Amen. And thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen.